I am. Whoa. Okay, here we go. LF, Oxhead, Strong, Power, Leader. Blessed are they who are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. Turn the page. Okay. They walk in your ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways are steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I lean and learn. learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. Good stuff. Sister Cyril stuff threw me. I was a little rattled reading that. So. Let's see here. Sister Sarah. Okay. Cyril. Cyril. Cyril, yeah. Sister Cyril. Um, today is April. April 6th, I think. All day. Yes. Okay. Sure. Uh, April 6th. Let's see what we have here. Um, it, it, it's amazing what can result from unsubstantiated claims. In 1820, a 14-year-old boy named Joseph Smith claimed to have received a vision in which God the Father and God the Son appeared to him and told him that they had chosen him to help restore true Christianity. Apparently not overly moved by this revelation, he went back to digging for Captain Kidd's treasure with his father and brother. When he was 17, he claimed to have been visited by an angel named Morani, who told him that he would receive the golden plates of the Book of Mormon to translate. In 1827, Smith alleged that he unearthed the plates in Kumora, a hill near Palmyra, New York. Smith said he translated the reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics with the help of miraculous glasses he supposedly received from Morani. <laughs> Oliver Cowdery, a schoolteacher and a Smith of uh, and a convert of Smith's, assisted in his translation. Although no one but Smith ever saw the golden tablets in 1829 during the translation the prophet, as Smith liked to be called, alleged that John the Baptist was sent by Peter, James, and John to bestow the Aaronic priesthood on him and Oliver. Early in 1830, they completed their translation and the Book of Mormon, the Book of Moron, was published and copyrighted. On April 6, 1830, Joseph Smith, Jr., his two brothers, Hiram and Samuel, Oliver Cowdery, and David and Peter Whitmer, Jr., met in Fayette, New York, to found a new religious cult they called the Church of Christ, eventually known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Mormon Church was begun. Soon after, the Mormons moved to Kirtland, Ohio, where they attracted many new followers. In six years, they grew to more than 16,000 members because of Smith's reputation as a charlatan and accusations that his religion was a hoax. The new church had to move several times. Next, they moved to Jackson County, Missouri, and then on to Nauvoo, Nauvoo, Illinois, but their problems followed them to each new location. The trouble intensified in Nauvoo when their practice of polygamy became public. The exact number of Smith's wives is not known, but it has been estimated to be as high as 50. When Smith called for the destruction of a newspaper that was outspokenly anti-Mormon, the state of Illinois stepped in to control the dispute and jailed Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram. On June 27, 1844, an angry mob stormed the jail and murdered both men. 
After the death of Joseph Smith, Brigham Young became the leader of the Mormons. Young led the group across the Great Plains and over the Rocky Mountains to the Salt Lake Valley, Valley in 1846. Finally, the Morons were, gre were granted recognition as a legitimate religion. Brigham Young had 27 wives and 56 children. Today, the Mormons claim to claim more than 11 million members. More than half of those live outside the United States. What do they believe? Simply stated, Mormons teach that all gods were originally men and that all men have the potential to become gods. Being a king and high priest to God is a step toward becoming a god. They believe that all persons were pre-existent and, depending on their good works, go to one of three levels of heaven. The telestial for unbelievers, terrestrial for ignorant but good people, and celestial for good Mormons. Ooh. Jesus, who is the Jehovah of the Old Testament, will reign over a millennial kingdom from Independence, Missouri. Yeah, gosh. How do you evaluate the beliefs of the Mormons? Do you believe that they are Latter-day Saints, as their name claims? How would you defend your answer to a Mormon? And it says in Galatians 1.8, which is exactly what I was going to cite, and I'm glad they put this here. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including myself, who preaches any other message than the one we told you about. Even if an angel comes from heaven and preaches any other message, let him be forever cursed. The Greek word is anathema, and that's where he is, and that's where he will remain. Ah, very upsetting just reading that. It just bothers me that they would even put that in this day. I know. I'm like, Christian where are they history. going with this? That it's has like, nothing to do with Christian history. That has to do with a cult that has taken away many, many souls from the true gospel of Jesus. That's all that's done. Gee, just reading that made me upset. Um, let's see here. Graham. Graham over in Scotland has been in the hospital. I wasn't aware of it. Um, I'm not on Facebook, and I didn't get any emails until I uh, saw something. Maybe Jim was the first one to tell me. And anyway, I found out that uh, he's in the hospital, but he is out. He had very bad sepsis. sepsis. And uh, anyway, he's out. He's on antibiotics, and the poor guy is very weak and tired. So uh, I'm glad he's okay because you get that. You, it, it can go south very quickly. But uh, anyway, thank goodness for that. And then I want to thank my friend Cynthia. Stuart and Cynthia, they sent me, actually they sent one to Hedico, and so we should rightly wear it together when she's in class, but she's not here today, and I want to wear this to the projects on Saturday. Yep. So it says, um, need prayer? Need prayer, and on the back it says, ask me, ask I me, I you. will pray for you. So I, I couldn't wait to wear this next week, so Did that'll, no, he's such a bad, per he's a bad person. I, I, I make a point of always wearing the shirt that I wore Thursday on Saturday. And the reason why is I only wear this half a day and then I'm at the projects for half a day. And so that's a full day and I'm too cheap to wash a shirt more than a full day. So there you go. So the, he, he knows very well that I do that. And he's just, he's pushing my buttons here, but uh, that's the case with that. Um, okay, having said that, before we get into the uh, prayer and then the study, uh, today is what they call Monday, Thursday, Maudie. or something. Maudie, whatever. That's it, it's you know it doesn't mean anything to me other than the fact that tomorrow. And if you disagree with this, uh, that's fine. You're entitled to disagree, and you're entitled to not be correct. That's right. Um, but uh, if you it, tomorrow we will observe what is called Good Friday. It's the day of Christ's crucifixion, 
And I know a lot of people say not was actually on a Thursday or it was actually on a Wednesday. And they have all these reasons for that. And all of them are not correct. Okay, I've got the study. If you want a copy of the study, I will forward it to you. I've got all of the information uh, as to what it means by a high Sabbath in John 19. Uh, what it means by three days and three nights from the book of Matthew and so on. All of these things are what we would call misconceptions or misanalyses. Um, people have taken those things and they have misperceived what is being said. Jesus Christ was crucified and he rose when? Sunday. Su Sunday. But what is the term that is used 13 times in the New the Testament? The first day of the week. No, specifically on the third day. It is the first day of the week, and it says that probably four times, maybe five. But 13 times it says Christ was raised on the third day. How do you justify that when you've got all of these other things that seem to be going on? One of the things that is going on is that people take unbiblical, I'm talking about anti or non-biblical uh, information, and they shove it into their, if it's not in the Bible, it doesn't count. Okay, I don't care what it is. If you're citing the book of Maccabees, it doesn't count. Not that that's a part of this, but uh, people are always citing things that are not in scripture and saying, well, see, because the Jews do this, that means this. And that is not the way to handle the Bible. We handle the Bible by reading the Bible and analyzing it from its own perspective. There's nothing wrong with going to extra biblical books and reading them. Uh, one of the most common books that people read and they take information from there and they shove it into their theology when it has nothing to do with the Bible at all is the book of Enoch. Enoch is not a canon, canonized book. It never was considered canon by the Jews. It was uh, only recorded in Greek. It was not kept with the sacred scroll, scrolls in the uh, uh, caves at Qumran. It is what is known as a pseudepigraphal document. That means a false writing, pseudepigraphal. Okay, it's always been considered that way, but it's very sensational, and so people will take it, and they'll say, wow, you know, this answers all these questions about the heavenly realm and all the different angels, and it, that's not a way of handling scripture, okay? Don't do that. Um, when you are talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you want to stick to scripture, and if you want a copy of that, just let me know, and I can send it right to you. I've got everything laid out. The one thing that you want to focus on above all else, if you do your own study, if you don't read my study, is the term preparation day. That is found in all four gospels. And if you use that as your benchmark of how you figure out the timeline, you can't be wrong because preparation day is only one day of uh, one possible day. Okay, so uh, because it's in all four gospels, it's like an anchor to help you be sure that you're not making any errors. But there are all kinds of other things that I put in there so that you know exactly what the timeline is. Um, uh, tomorrow's Good Friday. It's the day that Jesus Christ was crucified. And uh, it's something that uh, Mark and I were talking about it just a little bit before classes, that it is such a wonderful thing to think that all of the sin of humanity hung on the cross that day. All of it. Every single sin that any human being has ever committed, from the first sin committed by Adam to the last sin, it's all there. And you have a right to appropriate that by simply asking Christ to do it. Your sins are potentially forgiven. They're not actually forgiven until you ask him, but they are potentially forgiven. Every single sin. I tell you that if uh, Judas had lived and asked for God's forgiveness, he would have been forgiven. 
he hung himself and he is the son of perdition, okay? Um, uh, Adolf Hitler, if he asked for Christ's forgiveness, would have been forgiven. The grace and the mercy of God is unlimited. It is without any bounds at all. And so uh, if you feel like you're a person that cannot be forgiven for what you've done, I would ask you to uh, consider that God has taken everything that you deserve and put it on his own son. And then just ask him to forgive you and you will be forgiven. No matter how bad you have messed up your life and how bad the things you may have done, it is not beyond the grace of God. So please keep that in mind. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have redemption through his blood. We have full forgiveness once and forever when we simply believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, it's a, an important thing that we come to this time of year every year because we can get jaded, we can get hardened in our hearts, we can forget, we, we're just, that's the way it is. And so you've put everything into cycles that will keep us focused on you. We have a seven day week so that we do our weekly things. We have a certain number of months in the year so that we will follow the patterns and we will know when to do certain things. And you repeat these things year after year for our benefit. Thank you for that so that we stay close to you in the things that are necessary and help us to pursue you while we have the time. You're a great and wonderful God. You're so wonderful. Thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Sure. And, uh, tomorrow. Yes. Urban Lutzer said that that is the comeback of so many people that says I'm going to heaven because I'm good. Right. And he, they said, you mean that Hitler or whoever murdered all these people is going to be forgiven if they ask ahead of me? Absolutely. He said, he says they always come back to that. They, that's right. They, it always has to be a, about self. Yeah. Well, it, it can't be that. God would forgive Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot. He couldn't do that. And so it must be me. Yeah. I must be the answer to my salvation. And that's the problem. I is the problem. Every sing I said it last week, every single religion on the planet, every one of them is about me, except Christianity. It's about Jesus and what he has done for us. And what we need to do is accept that that very, very difficult premise, even though it's the simplest thing on the planet, once we get beyond it. But getting to that point can be really, really difficult. But you're right, everybody brings it back, well, if, how could he forgive Hitler? And so it's gotta be about me. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Okay, um, uh, let's see here, we got, uh, ooh, I'm glad I saw this note. Maybe I'll remember to do that before class is over. I gotta get something for somebody who wanted. Um, okay, let's see here. We are now in the book of 2 Thessalonians. I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, we're in verse 11, but you start wherever you want, and then we'll just, just go from there. Go back to the next verse, the verse before it. Chief, did you pray? Oh, thank you. Yes, we did. We did, we did say. Okay, yeah, sure. that's okay. You've been on a 40-hour flight, so that's okay. <laughs> we didn't, you didn't pray for anybody specifically. We usually pray. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Um, well, remind me at the end of the club. Well, we'll pray right now for him. Lord, you uh, did hear the, uh, uh, you heard the situation with Graham and uh, his uh, uh, situation in Scotland, and we lift him up. And we're very thankful. We want to praise you for our returning missionaries, and we want to thank you for uh, just the graciousness that you've blessed us with and uh, within our lives and within our interactions with others. And Lord, we just want to thank you. 
uh, that uh, you do hear our prayers when we uh, bring them to you. And uh, Lord, uh, just uh, respond according to what is inside of us, the things we need and the things that uh, are lacking in our lives. Please fill them up. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, good. Okay. okay. Start on 10. <clears throat> you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. 11. For you know that we dwelt, dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. Okay, this one's a little more expansive. And you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Yeah, that's in the next. Yeah. Okay, let's see here. Um, Paul is continuing the thought of the previous verse, which started with, You are witnesses, and God also. From there, he has been explaining how his conduct, along with those with him, was when they arrived at Thessalonica. Once again, I know I said it at least a hundred times last week, but I want to repeat it again. He is writing to a group of people and saying things about them and about himself. And he could not say these things if they weren't true. Because they'd get it, they'd say he's been, you know, obviously into the opium or something, and they'd throw the letter away and never talk to him again. So we know that what he says must be true, okay? And even if somebody in there uh, denied that it was true, he'd write his own letter and we'd have a record of it, okay? Just like with the book of Acts, you know, 500 people saw Christ, most of them are still alive, although some are still asleep. And he's writing this, he's recording this, and there's no refutation of it anywhere in Scripture. So it stands as its own witness. You know, talking about that, before we get into this, um, twice this week, I believe, uh, people have emailed me about, um, uh, no, it was last Thursday. Did I bring up Simon Greenleaf in the class last? Okay, I don't need to bring that up then. I, it was actually a whole week ago, and I'm just compressing my thoughts. So anyway, uh, Simon Greenleaf, I'm glad that we talked about that because it's important. If you're questioning the text of Scripture, how do you know that it stands for itself? And that's what the book of Acts does as well. It stands for itself. There's, it, it has been safely deposited in a repository, meaning the Christian faith for thousands of years. There's no refutation of it that stands, okay? And, you know, one of the things about the book of Acts, uh, I bring it up, is that um, to this day, if you want to know where Paul was shipwrecked, all you need to do is go to the book of Acts and say it's between two seas. In other words, there's water rushing in, in a location like this. And you go to the island of Malta, and you can point at the spot where that ship was stuck and beaten up because it's exactly the way Luke describes it. And if you go out and it says, well, we were here, and we dropped that. This is just an example. I'm not saying that's what Acts says. But uh, we dropped a uh, line, and it was 27 feet deep, and then it was 13 feet deep, which it talks about that next. But if you go to where they were, you will find out that it's exactly what they said. Now, you're not going to know where the ship was at the time, but everything that Luke says, everything that Luke says in there has been checked, and it's been rechecked, and it's been checked again by people trying to dismiss the Bible for 2,000 years. And they can't disprove what Luke, he was that good of a chronicler where every single thing he said was verifiable, okay? So, you know that you have a sure word in that case. Okay, I'm just thought of Simon Greenleaf, and I'm glad we talked about that last week. Okay, um, uh, from there he's been explaining how his conduct, along with those with him, was when they arrived at Thessalonica. And so, continuing, he says, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you. Here, the beginning word, as, 
is emphatic. It is an adverb which indicates just as or even so. Further, he now goes from the plural address when speaking to the whole to speaking to each individual by saying every one of you. Not a single person has passed over, and so each person individually could receive this letter as his own. And that is what is intended with the pages of the Bible. It's written as a document to various churches. It's also written as a personal letter to every single person on this planet. I'm talking about the whole of the Bible, not individual passages. But um, I was watching a uh, Catholic guy one time. He was, I think it was a YouTube video. And he's talking about why the church, meaning the Roman Catholic Church, was so important. He said that Martin Luther came along and they, they, uh, he used the term the priesthood of believers and how every person was uh, able to read the scriptures and to find out about God in them by himself. And he says, well, look at the chaos that's led to as if it's wrong for you to read scripture. Right. They are the interpreters and the authority over scripture and we do what the church says that they say the church, or the Bible reveals, okay? And my thought immediately was, well, look at all the problems that the Roman Catholic model has caused. I mean, you've talked about crusades, you've talked about killing Jews, save a soul, uh, you know, perversion up at the highest levels, uh, pedophile, all over the world, everywhere they've gone for 2,000 years, they've been you know, doing things with children that they should not be doing. They've been violating the priesthood day after day after day. I'm talking about their priesthood, not the priesthood. It's just, anyway, um, uh, so uh, when Paul writes to them, you, he's speaking to each individual in the congregation. He didn't just write this letter to the people at Thess Thessalonica as a group. He wrote it to them as a group and to each person in there. And when we read something like that, we should say, this applies to me because it is in the word of God. It is included. Even if he's talking about, you know how I encouraged you, he wasn't there encouraging me personally, Charlie Garrett, but the letter is written and it's in a book that we have the right to read and to understand and to say, one, I know it's true because of the argument I gave you a couple minutes ago, and two, because it's true, the things that he is saying pertain to me as well, okay? Um, uh, let's see here, where was I? Okay, every one of you, not a single person has passed over. Each one of them was instructed to remember how he was personally exhorted, comforted, and charged. The church is a group of people, and so certain things are done collectively in it, but it is a group of individuals, and so there should be an attention given to each member as well. Paul not only did this well in person, but he is continuing that pattern in his letter to them. Okay, this is one of the things I always stress over, always. You know, on uh, Sunday, we'll have somebody come in and they'll visit. And I always try to give them a hug or a thank you if they come. If I know them, I'll give them a hug. And if there's somebody just visiting, I thank them personally. Um, and sometimes, you know, somebody will be sick and I'll say, I hope you're feeling well. And the next person will come by and I'm not thinking, and they were sick too, and I don't say anything. I always stress over missing something and excluding somebody, and I would never do that intentionally. You know, it, it's like uh, last Sunday I was talking uh, about some uh, uh, things that people had done for the church, and I mentioned three or four people that had put up podcasts and stuff. And when I got home, after the busy day was over, I sat there and I thought, I forgot to mention two people that also put up help with the podcasts and with the uh, YouTube videos. And I just stressed over that because I thought, 
I, it wasn't intentional. It's just when you, you know, when you're sitting up there, it is very hard to concentrate on what is in your mind. If it's not written down right in front of you, it's probably something you're gonna forget. And Sergio said that as well. He said, I find it so hard to go from the giving the communion to knowing which button to push to end the service because it's a technical thing instead of a personal thing. So um, Plus the worst thing about it is it's recorded, so you get to see it. I uh, you get like, to ah, see it, I and forgot. I forgot to say something to that person, or I forgot to acknowledge the death of their mother, or something like that. I really take that to heart. Sure. I it, but it's always like a day and a half later when my mind is fine. I was sent something by Don and Jody a couple days ago, and they said, "Would you read this and check it?" And I did, and it was this afternoon. I went into the back and I just sat down and I was kind of like out of it for a little while and I my mind finally after all that time has got a chance to think and I thought I've got to tell something to them to explain when this is read in the church because people aren't going to know what that is but to me I know because I lived over there anyway it's a very small thing but I would never intentionally overlook somebody and if I do it usually comes to me right when I'm trying to sleep and then I stew over it all night long. Like, oh no, you know, whatever. But Paul is very careful to address people. You can see it especially at the end of the book of Romans. He addresses like 36 people individually. He didn't want to miss anybody. He wanted to make sure. And I'm sure that after he got done with the book of Romans and he had sent it off, he said, I forgot to mention Sergiopolis or something. You know, I, I could just see it. But it wasn't supposed to be in the Bible because um, uh, obviously the Bible is exactly the way the Lord wants it. But Paul probably sweat over forgetting this person. Anyway, um, uh, anyway, it's a beautiful touch. This care that he has for every one of them comes right from Paul's heart. So much so that he tells them his care for each was given as a father does his own children. Okay, and that's the way I feel once again, you know, I mean, there are people that attend online. They're, uh, you know, they're a part of the church. They belong here, and yet I've never personally met them. But when something happens to them individually, it's like my own child. And I'm talking about child in the faith, not my, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I, how can I make this person feel better? And... I don't know. It, it, it's a stressful thing because you don't want to forget people's own situations just because they're far off. Uh, so anyway, uh, like Graham, until I read that, oh, it was in the prayer list and then you came with an email right afterward. But until then, I didn't know that. And I felt so bad. You know, here he's been in the hospital and I didn't even know. So anytime you hear something like that, please let me know because I can at least pray for him. One thing I won't do is if somebody doesn't say, would you bring this to the church? I don't mention it during prayers like on Thursday or Sunday because some people don't want to be, they don't want that. They And if you do, then they write back and they say, you know, I wish you'd kept that private. And then you, and I made two mistakes. So um, <laughs> unless somebody says, please tell the church this, I don't ever repeat it on Thursday or Sunday. I, I you know, um, unless it's an example with no names given. You know, I'll give an example of something, but I won't. Anyway, um, uh, Paul changes the metaphor here from the nursing mother that we talked about in verse 7 last week to a caring father. Okay, and that's why verse 7 is probably the way that we described it when we talked about it, because he's using a metaphor and now he's changing it from mother to father. Paul treated the church as a family, and he treated each person within the church as an individual family member who should be given special attention. Again, he could not have written this 
to them unless it was true. I think I said that in the past three of my commentaries, but it's such an important point to keep reminding yourself because people are there. Man, they're there to tear apart the Bible. We were talking about that with Jim and I before the class. Is people come in and they say, well, the Bible isn't reliable because, and this guy was a pastor, you said. Yeah, something in a church. You know, I, I don't understand how somebody could be a, a professor in a seminary and this isn't uncommon. This is the most common thing you'll find in uh, professors in a seminary. It's not the exception. It's almost the rule. Is that they are there to tear apart the Bible. They're not there to make the Bible look like it's the inspired Word of God. Um, and, and I would say that if if uh, you were in took all of the professors and all of the seminaries in America and you were to put them into one lump and uh, identify the ones that took that stand other than the other, you would probably be above 85% of them, probably. There's a very small number of uh, professors out there that really care about the Word of God. Now, there may be a lot of them in one college, okay, or, or seminary. There may be, uh, you know, 95% of them in that college, but in most of the colleges, that is the standard. There might be two that are defending the Bible, and the other 55 are there to tear it apart. So, um, you know, you have to be ready to defend the Bible. And the only way you're ever going to be able to do that is to know the Bible. Okay? People are out there to harm your faith. Um, that reminds me of that video. Yeah. It just, it's very sad because people that start out well-intentioned, they're in Christian school, their parents are, you know, and next thing you know, they go off to seminary or they go off to a college, just a secular college, but with, you know, a Bible class. And they say, I'm going to take Bible line there. And they think that they're ready for what's coming. They are not. And what do they do? They end up walking away from their faith entirely. So uh, you have to be grounded in scripture and you have to be ready. And you can, there's always the, the answer, you know, I just don't know, but by faith, I'm going to accept that this word is true. Your analysis of it is flawed. I may not know why, but I am grounded enough to say, I believe the word of God. Then I know where I can go to check what you've said. Okay, and there are places you can go to check those things. There are good websites out there that give good information. There are, uh, you know, lots of pastors and uh, uh, teachers out there that hold to the Word of God. There's always going to be a right answer for things like that. So don't let people tear your faith down because they're out there to do it. All right, um, and a, a title at the end of a name or at the beginning of it, doctor somebody or uh, somebody reverend somebody doesn't mean anything. It means this much. Okay, just because somebody has a doctorate in theology does not mean that he knows anything about scripture. Okay, I, I know many, many doctors of theology and uh, people that have what's under a doctorate, a uh, uh, master's in, uh, uh, anyway, master's in theology or whatever. Uh, they don't know anything about the Bible. They don't know anything. They got a degree in theology which is a giant subject that can mean anything. It can mean I understand what Buddhism teaches and what uh, uh, Hinduism teaches and what Christianity teaches and what Islam teaches. That's all that means. Theology just means the study of God. It doesn't mean you know what the Bible is. Okay, you may know more about the Bhagavad Gita than you do about the Bible if you've got a, a degree in uh, theology. So uh, don't trust titles until you know who the person is and if they're grounded in the word, okay? Um, Paul couldn't written this to them if it wasn't true. If it were not so, they would have simply laughed at the letter and tossed it in the fire. But it was received. It was 
treasured and it has been passed down to us as a reminder of the care given by Paul and those with him towards the church at Thessalonica. No doubt about it. It's a sure word. It is reliable. And what he writes would not still be in print today if it wasn't true. That's all there is to it. Life application. Paul's use of the family metaphors in this epistle should remind each of us that the church we attend is, in fact, like a family. As this is so, we should attempt to treat the other members of this family in that manner. Let us carry one another's burdens and let us treat them with care and respect. It's not always easy. You know, you got people that you know, rub you wrong the one way or another and, uh, you know, it just, that's what happens. But I've got family members that rub me wrong as well. Okay, I'm sure most of us do. And so it's not always possible to uh, not, you know, I'm gonna sit on that side of the church and I know they're gonna sit on that side of the church because, and that's fine. The Lord understands that we are human beings that have differences, but we should at least attempt to be like we would with a family member, be sociable with them and, and uh, understand that Christ died for that person too and uh, it, whatever. Uh, it, it's a hard thing to do. I understand that. Um, verse 212. Encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Okay, and I'm in the wrong book here, so here. Okay, encouraging. Um, I heard what you said, and I remember most of it. Read it one more time. Encouraging, comforting, oh, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Yep, see what they did is they moved the, the, a couple, in order to make the verses fit, because of the way they translated it, they moved part of it into this verse from that verse. Right. Yeah, um, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory without the other things. Right. Yeah, I just thought they missed it in the last yeah. one. They didn't. It's there, but they've moved it over. And sometimes that's necessary. Okay, that's just how it is, is that, um, uh, you know, they translate it one way, they translate it another, and if they take a clause and move it over here, then obviously you've got to move words. So it's all there. Nothing is missing. Okay, good. Um, let's see here. As you, oh, this verse reads a lot differently than Galatians 1, 6. Let me read you that, which is what we were going to, I was going to read uh, 1, 6 through 8 when we were talking about um, uh, the Mormons, but they only cited Romans 1, 8, and that's sufficient. But now that we're going to be in Galatians 1, 6, um, uh, Galatians, Corinthians, uh, let's see here. Uh, you know what, it goes Corinthians, Galatians. Hello, Charlie. Um, there we go. Um, Anyway, I'll read the whole thing just because this is what they were saying in verse 1, 8 during that uh, thing about the Mormons. I'll read the whole thing. But verse 1, 6 says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Okay, and then this one here says, uh, what verse were we in just now? We were in uh, 2.12. So, oh, too far. Um, 2.12. It says here um, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. Now, um, I am not sure why I said Galatians 1.6. Um, who called you? And, yeah, okay, who called you? That's the, the point I was going with. Okay, anyway, I want to read you 1.6 through 1.8 so you have the full scope of why Mormonism is a heretical organization. Not only is it not biblical, it is anti-biblical. You know, when it says right on the Book of Mormon, another gospel of Jesus Christ, that ought to tell you there's a problem. But I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, 
but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But, here it is, verse 8, but even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel, another gospel of Jesus Christ, any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. You know, I, I have a feeling that 99% of the Mormons are just like everybody else in the world. They don't pick up the Bible and read it. And because of that, if they simply compared Galatians 1, 6 through 8 with what it says on the front of the Book of Mormon. They would take the Book of Mormon and put it where it belongs in the incinerator, but uh, people don't do that. And, you know, we're responsible for where our doctrine lies. Anyway, um, they take it back to their teacher. Oh, sure. Explain that to me. Yeah, explain that to me. Right. It's always with the Jehovah's Witnesses, too. Let me take this to the elders. Why don't you take it to God? He's already given you his word. Just take it there and search it out. Anyway, my Jewish um, friends will say that too. The what? Most of my Jewish oh, yeah. friends will say that. Oh, yeah. I'll go ask my rabbi. Yeah. Yep. They, they all have to go to somebody that uh, they, they will trust with their eternal soul. Another man. Man, what a sad place to be. Anyway, as Galatians 1 6 said, and as this is a little different, as you can see, that is in the past tense who called you. For this reason, the translators of some versions, such as the King James Version, erringly changed this verse in 1 Thessalonians to hath called. They probably did this to clear up a seeming theological inconsistency, but that results in an incorrect translation. The verb here is a present participle, active. Hath called is a aorist participle, okay? It's, uh, yeah, hath called, yeah, aorist participle. So um, it should read calls or is calling. That would be a present participle. Present, calling, okay. Participle means that it's defined by another verb or another part of the verb. Um, you have a regular verb would be called, and then you have had called, has called, is calling, all of these different things. The two combined make a participle, okay. Something can be a simple verb or it can be a participle. When you read the book of Acts, if you read it in a good translation like Young's or uh, the Berean uh, literal Bible or uh, maybe the literal standard version, you will see that Luke uses participles through the whole thing. It, and you miss a lot if you don't have that translated properly because you're reading it and it sounds like something is you know just said when it's, it's more than that. It's alive, it's active, and you're actually moving with the, the narrative as he's writing it. So, um, you know, if you have a literal Bible and you are reading the book of Acts, use that literal Bible and you'll get a lot more sense out of it, at least from the, the verbiage, all right? Um, so, um, this is an active, it is a present participle active. It reads, uh, calls or is calling. There's not any inconsistency between these. Paul was telling the Galatians that they had been called into the grace of Christ and they stood in that grace which they were then turning away from okay here in 1 Thessalonians he is telling the congregation that though they have been called into God's grace they are still here in this life and they must live it out they have to live out that grace until it is fully realized in their being gathered together to him okay so obviously you know, we can hope for the rapture. We can wrongly speculate on the day of the rapture. We can do all those kind of things, but it doesn't mean that we're not here living right now. And if most of the rapture speculators would stop speculating on the rapture, they would be living out their life in Christ instead of just being in a dreamland. 
But, uh, you know, it, sensation sells, watching 8 million videos a day about the rapture and about it's going to be next March. You know, in the past year alone, I bet you I have been sent 150 the rapture is going to happen on within a year. At least 150. This is every day almost I get these things, or every other day I get these things. And then when it doesn't happen, you'd think the person would say, gee, I'm not going to watch that anymore. And the next week I get another video, and it says the rapture is going to happen on this day. And they just keep doing this. There's a point where you have to just say, I'm not going to participate in this anymore, if you are mature. But if you knew, what would you do? Yeah, I mean, what difference would it make? If you happen to know I have the pack. Yeah. You know, let me be. <laughs> the, the whole thing is, the entire the entire thing is faulty. Because if the rapture happens on the day that the guy said it's going to happen, we're gone anyway. No, it's stopped. The only it's thing you can do is lose by predicting rapture. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing you can do. You can never gain from it, okay? Uh, you're going to be taken with everybody else at the same time. So you didn't gain anything. Anyway, you've got to get off that, but this is this is the kind of thought that people get into things and they stop living their life in Christ. And Paul is telling them basically that here. Okay, um, where was I? Yeah, let me read that again. He's telling the congregation that though they have been called into God's grace, and everybody here has been called into God's grace if they believed in Jesus, they are still here in this life, and they must live it out until that grace is fully realized in their being gathered to him. Thus, they needed to, to, they needed to right now and continually walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. There's no contradiction between Galatians and this. It's just Paul speaking in a different manner for a different reason. As you can see, there is no contradiction. There is the calling, which is already granted, but it is not yet actually realized. When Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly, with God in the heavenly realms in Christ. Does everybody here think you're sitting in heaven right now? I, I mean, we're not. We're not sitting in heaven right now. We're waiting for that to happen. But put our, uh, in God's economy, in his thinking, because we are in Christ, that is where we are. Even though it hasn't happened yet, to him, it is a done deal. So this is the type of thing that Paul is telling them, okay? Um, this there's the calling which is already granted but it is not yet actualized there is us already granted sitting in the heavenly realms with God in Christ but it has not yet actually happened it is sad that translators will often change what the literal reading is because of misunderstanding about theology translators are to translate they are not to presuppose and then translate. Scholars are the people that take the Bible and they analyze it and they say, okay, this is what this means. This is, and they can be right or they can be wrong. A translator is not to do that. A translator is to take what it says in this language and because they're supposedly fully versed in that language, they should be able to take it and make it understandable and exact in the receiving language. Okay, I will tell you that when Hidako and I were in Japan, I put her first because it's pertaining to her. When we were in Japan, she translated for the uh, Fifth Air Forces in the U.S. Air Force. In other words, she worked up at the headquarters. They found out that my wife spoke fluent Japanese, she spoke fluent English, and that she was a U.S. citizen. And so they gave her this job in the super secret little corner of Fifth Air Forces. 
and she sat there and she translated things. And if she made a, she never told me one word that she translated to this day. That's she, she took that security clearance very seriously. And to this day, she's never told me what she did. But uh, she, if she translated something incorrectly, it could have caused an international incident, okay? When you take a language and you say, this is what this says, and you don't translate it properly, there is now a misunderstanding between the two people. If you ever are watching the news and you see, um, uh, say, Donald Trump and um, Putin, they're standing side by side. You normally will not get a, a camera angle where there is somebody right next to them. They kind of squeeze them out. But there is a guy standing right next to Putin, and there's a guy standing right next to Trump. And those two people are telling what the other person is saying. Okay? And once in a while, you'll get a good camera angle where this is going on. But if that guy says something incorrectly, then... Uh, did anybody here see the movie with... Um, uh, what was it? Uh, George C. Scott. He was... Um, uh, Patton. Patton. Yeah. You all saw that? Yeah, Do you remember at the very end when he was with the Russians and they were sitting down to celebrate defeating the Germans and the Russians said something and he's all happy and uh, George C. Scott playing Patton says, uh, well, you tell the, the uh, general, speaking to the, the um, Russian general, that I think he's a, and I can't repeat it because it was a bad thing, okay? So he said, you tell him that. And the guy froze. And he said, I can't tell him that. He said, you, you say exactly what I just told him. And he did. I still can almost say it in Russian because it's this funny, I won't say it. But anyway, um, this general got all, and he got fuming for a second. Then he started to laugh and he said, well then from one of you to one of me, I can drink to that, okay? But if that guy made a mistake in that translation and then tried to cover it up or something, there would be a completely different outcome in what had happened in that conference, okay? Um, it's surprising that the general didn't just pull out his gun and shoot Patton, but um, if that actually really happened. But um, uh, you see what I'm saying. When you are a translator, your job is to translate. translate. It's not to go in and determine. Now, sometimes you actually have to determine context. That is true. And so translators should be at least first well enough in scripture to say, I know that this fits with this and this is what is being said. Because sometimes words can be translated in various ways, but when it's Greek and you've got a present tense, you should not change that from the present tense, okay? This is what God intended. That's something basic. You know, the surrounding theology may need to be interpreted a little bit, and that's why they have margin notes and things like that, footnotes. This is talking about blah, blah, blah. That's fine. But if something is a basic translation, their job is to translate, not to interpret. Okay, and that's a very important point so that when you get to a Bible and it says Young's literal translation, it's usually going to be a very close rendering of what it says in the Greek. Not always so. Even Young's, which is one of the most precise that I've come across, I have found errors in what he has translated. He's not placed an article in there where he, it is in the Greek or in the Hebrew or something, but for the most part, it's usually a very close translation, all right? The versions usually are missing quite a bit. I don't know why that is, but um, anyway, the uh, purpose of this life in Christ is not merely to be called 
and then sit around waiting for Jesus to swoop us up out of here, but to work out our calling daily. We are to tell others about Christ and do that in a spirit of grace and in a manner worthy of God. He is called, we have received, now we need to act in accord with that. Someday we will enter into his kingdom and glory, and so let us now act in a manner which will, bring re- which will not bring regret, but in a manner which will show that we are truly thankful for having been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Okay, that is what we should be doing. I was evaluating myself. Uh, as I said, I was back there for, I was just so tired this afternoon, and so I came in, and when I was back there, I was evaluating my life, and I said, Lord, I just, wow. what's that? Wow. <laughs> no, I'm talking about my, my, my week, my, how are you? Um, yeah, you can come in if you want. We're just having a Bible study. The what? Oh, your restaurant? You want the uh, Thai plate? Oh, we, does anybody here have a Band-Aid? Do we, have, we, don't have a, we don't have any Band-Aids at all. You sure? You I'm so sorry. God bless you. Yeah, all right. Have a wonderful evening. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I, we need to get a first You just, we need to get a first aid kit. So that helped us out. We'll do that. Have a wonderful night. All right. You too. Um, so I wasn't evaluating my whole life. I was evaluating my life in the past week. Okay. And that's what I meant. I was just thinking about, um, you know, and I, I just was saying, Lord, you know, I get so angry. I go onto Twitter and I see the things that are going on in the world. You know, they're a great source of getting news. I'm going to tell you what, but I, and I, I get stewing and then I get thinking wrong thoughts. And so I'm evaluating myself. And what was it that got me to say that? Oh yeah, we want to, uh, 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 act in a manner which will show that we are truly thankful for what we have been called from and to, okay? And I'm always thankful for that, but I don't always focus my thoughts on that. I get misdirected by being, and that's why, you know, uh, maybe a month and a half or two months ago, somebody said, would you say something encouraging at the end of the Prophecy Updates? And I thought, I will do that. And so every week I've done that. I've tried to think of something encouraging because if you just leave off at the end of the update with, with the nonsense, and, you know, and I always had the, the what do you call it, the um, I- irony. And that kind of makes people happy. And I thought that was enough. But uh, this guy was like, it's just so depressing. And yeah, it's depressing. But one, we need to live out this life. We need to know what's going on. And we can't be responsible citizens if we don't know what's going on. So we can't hide those things, but at the same time, uh, we can't let them affect us to the point where we're not effective in our walk with the Lord. And so, uh, uh, anyway, I hope she gets a Band-Aid. I wish, somebody remind me, somebody please online send me an email and tell me to uh, get a first aid kit, because I know somebody will. I I bet you my friend already has, you know who I'm talking about up in Maryland. Um, Okay, as long as I remember that, because I never even thought of it until, yeah, text me, okay, good. Yeah. Okay, life application. Reading several translations of the Bible is always wise. The translators of the King James Version knew this and said as much in their preface remarks. They say, this is their words in their preface, a variety of translations is profitable for finding out the sense of scriptures. Now, they don't put that in the King James Version anymore because it blows away their argument that uh, you should buy our Bible only. And so they took all of the important information. That preface on the King James Version, the original King James Version, which is still available online, 
was like 11 pages of mm. small writing. I, I mean, it's just very, very cramped in there. And he got through with it or halfway through with it, and he says, well, our uh, preface, I guess, or what, however he says it, he says, uh, his name is Miles Covendale, I think, was the guy that did the preface. He says, we've already gotten a little long for a preface. And it's like, yeah. I mean, he went on and on and on. But it it is a very nice read. If you ever have time, and it's hard read, okay? It's not an easy read because it's in the original 1611 language, which has been updated in the King James Version today. So it's a very hard read. But if you want to get a good sense of what was on their mind when they did that translation, go online and say, type in original preface to the King James Version and start reading. And after about 10 minutes, you're going to be like, oh, it's very hard to read. But the good thing about it, if you do it online, you can word search. That's right. Word searching helps you with that. So. But it is it is a good read. I read the entire thing to get the points that I have in my commentary out of it. And it was very hard to do, but uh, I'm glad that I did it. Anyway, 213. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it is actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. That's a long one. It sure is. Yeah, it's very close, but it's off a bit. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Once again, a total refutation of the Catholic argument that the church needs to uh, be, be the, given the yeah be, be given the a responsibility for the word. Absolutely, yeah. because he says right there that it effectively works in you who received it. Right. Well, how can you receive it if it has to go through a secondary body? But, but they didn't have the Bible. Well, but that's what he's saying. He's but, saying right, that right. this is the word of God. What we are saying to you is the word of God. Right, right. Well, what's the difference between what he said and what we now have in our hand? Nothing. Nothing. But this is the word of God. Okay. So I don't speak the word of God. I will. I, I'm talking about from me, from God through me. I don't do that. There's not a person on this planet that speaks the word of God. Joseph Smith did not speak the word of God. We can take the Word of God, we can read it, we can uh, repeat it to people, but Paul and the other apostles spoke out the Word of God, and that's the point that he is making, and they received it as such. Well, now we can open this and we can say this is the Word of God, because it has been transmitted to us by these men of God, right? Everybody get the logic there? So if anybody says, this is the Word of God to you, in the church, he says, well, the Lord just told me, or the word the Lord has given me a word to tell you I'm sorry Wrong. that is not what's happening he is telling you what he wants to tell you all right unless he says this is the word of God and I'm now going to analyze it for you okay or you know what I do every week at the beginning and so um, uh, uh, it's all to be found in his superior word and so let's turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today and may his name be praised. We are evaluating his word. I am not giving you the word of God from me, okay? Anyway. The, um, we, we do know one pastor who, as he was ready to leave and announcing to his folks, said from the pulpit that the Lord talked to me and said that my work is done here. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Who, 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 who was that? Who do you think? I don't remember. Steve. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I guess Scott did speak through him. Yeah, right. Oh, I I did not realize he had said that. Yes, sir. Second Peter. Two Peter. Yeah, go ahead. Read it real loud, so they can hear you. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Human will. That's right. But, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's right. That's exactly right. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And there's no need for that anymore. There's no need for it because we have the Word of God. It is complete and it says amen at the end of it. So, uh, you know, I, I just, I'm very firm in my thinking about this. I, if people aren't, that's fine. People can believe anything they want, but I am very firm in my thinking that God has spoken and he has said, this is it. This is what I want you to hold to. Not the book of Enoch, not the Maccabees or the Jubilees or the Apocrypha, which those are in the Apocrypha, or any other Joseph Smith. Uh, as I said uh, in a class, uh, I guess it was probably about a month ago, is that if you accept a word from the Lord from somebody today, you have no reason to not accept the word of Joseph Smith. You have no reason to not accept it because they're making a claim that you cannot otherwise... If this isn't the final authority on the Word of God, then this isn't the final authority on the Word of God. Okay, so that's a very good verse to have in there. Um, uh, it, it, there's no need for any more. Anyway, um, 2.13, here's the, what we kind of got away from the uh, reading of it, but that's okay. The words, for this reason, refer to the godly instruction and careful labors that Paul and those with him exerted in their evangelization of those at Thessalonica. Okay, It is Paul's words, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Okay, This is one of those things that Paul, he writes in his letters. He's going to say it again basically towards the end of the epistle in chapter 5 where you know he thanks without ceasing, he prays without ceasing, and I really believe he meant that. He's the kind of guy that, you know, you know people, uh, there are some people out there that always are thanking the Lord. They're always including the Lord in what they're doing. You know, let's stop and pray about that. You know, um, Sergio and Rode are very good to remind themselves to do this. They may not remember to do it, but right on the door as they walk out the house, it says stop and pray. Okay, it, that's a good way of reminding yourself before you go on a, a drive somewhere, stop and pray about it. Lift it up to the Lord. Can we help you, sir? Thank you. Okay, don't leave that by the door. Bring that over here because I don't want that by the door. Okay, um, that should not be by the door. If somebody came in and for some reason picked it up, that would that would not be good. It'll jam. Okay. Don't okay. worry. It'll yeah. Be safe. Yeah. It's not going to jam. Okay. Yeah. You can leave anything else by the door, but do not leave that by the door. Thank you, Thor. Tell Faith we love her. All right. Have a nice evening. Okay. Um, yeah, if you want to see this afterward, it's pretty cool. Um, but we won't pull it out on uh, video. Okay, um, uh, you'd have to have your own special video for it and take it down to the gun range. And here, I'm going to show you about this wonderful thing. Anyway, um, uh, where was I? Okay, yeah, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. It is evident from these words that their labors were not in vain. Instead, they were a source of rejoicing, as he says, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us. Here, the Greek reads in a different order, more accurately saying something like, when you receive the word of your hearing from us, even the word of God. 
the reception of the word into the ear is directly equated with the word of God. In other words, when Paul as an apostle spoke, he was speaking the word of God. Okay, And if somebody comes up to you and he is quoting scripture, he is speaking to you the word of God. That's all there is to it because now he can be mishandling it. He can be, you know, taking this verse and this verse and putting them together and, uh, you know, not handling the word properly. But this is the word of God. In other words, when they heard the word of God, the Thessalonians, and they understood it to be the word of God, or they did understand it to be the word of God. They heard it and they knew that it was. This then is explained by the next words. You welcomed it not as the word of men. When the Thessalonians heard the word, it was as reasonable and obvious a presentation of the word as of God as it could be. They just said, this is it, okay? I understand that this is the word of God. Um, in hearing the gospel, it made such sense that it was, without a doubt, not something men had conjured up. Rather, Paul notes, but as it is, in truth, the word of God. Okay, if you talk about the... now. I, I don't want to take this too far because once you start inserting emotions, that becomes a problem, okay? But when you take a person that is a drug addict or that it is that is a murderer or a person that, you know, is a philanderer, whatever, and you present them with the gospel and the next day there's a change in that person and the next year that person is still changed. And 10 years later, that person has still changed. There was an effect on that person's life, okay? There's no doubt about it. Now, that can happen in various ways. You know, a judge can say, if you do this one more time, you're gonna end up in prison for the rest of your life. And that may change a person, okay? He may just evaluate himself and say, okay, I, I'm just not gonna do that anymore. But when you see the presentation of the gospel change person after person after person, and when you see that it is introduced into a prison and the rate of recidiv I can't pronounce that word, recidivism. Coming back. Yeah, coming back into the prison is for the only time in history down an extreme level. And when it's stopped and the rate goes back up, it tells you that there is power in those words, okay? It's not just something temporary. It's not just something that, oh, it woke up one person or it woke up, you know, uh, it is something that actually has power, all right? And there's no doubt about it. If people are willing to listen to the gospel and think about their state before God, there is no doubt that this is the word of God. Nothing else has the effect that it does in humanity. Nothing, okay? Uh, so uh, it is, as Paul just said, it is in truth the word of God. It was understood based on the conduct of labors the conduct and labors of Paul and his associates that they were transmitting a truthful message. The two things, the efforts of the evangelists and the soundness of the message made it perfectly clear that it was the word of God and not of men which they had been presented. That was important because, you know, Paul is just a guy and there's people all over the world that are saying, I've got the answer, I've got the true message, all right, and their actions were in accord with the word they proclaimed. And that's an important point because there are people all over the world whose actions are not in accord with the word they proclaim. And that's what I was doing back there this afternoon was, Lord, is my life being reflected in the way 
or in the word that I preach. Because if it's not, I need to think about that. And I need to evaluate myself and think, how can I make this more uh, appropriate, more correct? I want to align my life with this word. And when you're angry because of the things that are being posted on social media, or when you're angry at, you know, the people that are cutting you off on the highway because there's 8 billion tourists here and they all have to be there before you do, I mean, it's frustrating. And your life and your actions can be wrong, all right? And so we need to evaluate ourselves because it's not just the word, it has to be in accord. Uh, although, let's take this to a, an extreme that should not be taken to. Uh, when um, Mahatma Gandhi said, I would probably be a Christian if it weren't for the conduct of the Christians. He said something like that. That's, that's a misquote of him, but he basically said, oh, the message is very good, but the conduct, he, in essence, he's saying they're all hypocritical. Well, that's taking that too far. And the reason why is because everybody on this planet is hypocritical in some way at some time. Okay, we all fall, we all fail. But not only that, just because a person is hypocritical, it does not mean that the message is right. hypocritical. And so we, we can't take this thought that I'm presenting to you too far. We've got to stop at a point and say, I am going to reasonably evaluate the Quran, or I'm going to reasonably evaluate the Bible, or I'm going to reasonably evaluate the writings of Lao Tse or whoever, and I'm going to say, does this meet the qualifications? Forget the person that told me about it. Okay, I saw him do something that was contrary to what he was telling me the next day, and so I'm not going to believe it. That's not a good way of handling your life, okay? When I uh, went to Malaysia, I'd never been to a Muslim country, and I was going to live in it for three years, and I thought, well, I need to know what these people believe. And so I read the Quran on the way down. I read it uh, you know, before I got there and on the way down. And when I got there, I finished it up. So I had read the Quran to understand what these people thought. And I thought, I won't even, I, yeah, I just, I, I can't go beyond that, okay? Uh, it, you talk about a book that is, has no light, no light in it at all. That is it, okay? But that's fine, you know, that's, it, it is what it is. And there's a lot of people that adhere to it, but what they need is the light of God, and they're not going to find it in that book. So anyway, be honest with yourself in whatever you do. And, you know, you can't really badmouth the Islam until you know what Islam teaches, okay? And once you do, then you can say whatever you want. Have a wonderful evening. Get some rest, you guys. Um, uh, but you, uh, you need to at least be versed in what you're talking about or you're just spouting off party politics. And that's what we see all over Facebook all day or whatever, uh, Twitter or whatever, wherever people are talking about their party politics when they don't even know what's going on in the issues they're talking about. So uh, at least be versed in whatever the subject is, okay? Um, it was understood, I'll read that one more time. Rather, Paul notes, but as it is in truth, the word of God. They took it as the word of God, Paul says that it was the word of God and they evaluated it and they came to the realization, yes, this is. It was understood based on the conduct and labors of Paul and his associates that they were transmitting a truthful message. The two things, the efforts of the evangelists and the, sounding, the soundness of the message made it perfectly clear that it was the word of God and not of men which they had been presented. It is this message 
as Paul says, which also effectively works in you who believe. The words effectively works are referring to the word, not to God. They are in the middle voice. And as is the case when used by both Paul and James, this middle voice is only of things. In this case, the thing is the word of God. The word had effectively worked in Paul and his associates, and once it was heard and received by the believers in Thessalonica, it then effectively worked in them as well. This will be further explained by Paul in the coming verses. The word will be shown to have changed them into new people with a new direction. Instead of being enemies of God, they had become people pleasing to God. Good stuff. Let's see, we've got plenty of time. Life application. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. People's conduct will never be directed to that which is pleasing to God without them being presented the gospel message. Okay, I was talking to somebody today. I'm going to need to have a sit down and talk about uh, uh, Christianity this, to this individual. But um, uh, she was saying that um, uh, I, I'm doing good things. I, I, because God will basically be happy with me because I'm doing good things. And we can do all the good things in the world we want, and that won't ever make God happy with us because there's already a problem in us, okay? And the bad things that we do negate any good that we do anyway. So uh, when Paul says that there is none who does good, no, not one, that means everybody. All of us are fallen. All of us cannot be pleasing to God because we have the problem in us already. And that has to be resolved first. And then we can do good things that God will say, I am pleased with what that person is doing. Okay. But we get the, the what is it? The cart before the horse in our thinking. And I'm talking about humanity in general. And it's always that way. As I said at the beginning, it always comes back to I. I. I have to be the one that will save myself and God will be pleased with how I do it. Okay. Um, there are people all over the world who do good stuff. But without a conversion to Christ, the wall of enmity remains. Only in Christ is that removed. The church age seems to be ending. The world is taking a terrible path into utter wickedness, and many will be eternally separated from God unless they hear and receive the message of Jesus Christ. Speak and share while there is time. Okay, and I wrote this, what, seven years ago or something. Okay, I did this commentary. And... Um, how much worse is it now? I mean, if you think just five, seven years ago, the difference, it's unbelievable where this world has gone. It is going so quickly. It, you just have to say to yourself, how can it get worse before the Lord comes? I mean, it, it's unbelievable. Now, obviously, in America, we still have some freedoms, and you know, you get to go to the store and go shopping and stuff. But if you just look at the overall thinking of the people of the world, just in an overall sense, Nation, just this week, you know, maybe I got it in the prophecy update or maybe I stored it for next week or something. But just this week, I think it was yesterday, France now wants to uh, approve euthanasia. So it's just like this, this, uh, yeah, bowling pin that's just knocking pins over one country after another. Let's just get rid of people. Let's just get rid of people. You know, and once you get the foot in the door in one country, the next country comes along and does it, and by the time they do, this country is not doing it just for you know humanitarian purposes anymore. They're doing it for convenience purposes. And then pretty soon it's gonna be forced euthanasia. So it's just one step 
at a time, and pretty soon everything has gone bad. Uh, and so you know, when I saw that with France, it didn't surprise me, but it's just another pin that has fallen down. And once you've gone that route, you're never gonna undo it. It will never be undone. And you can see how Genesis 6, it says that wickedness permeated the entire world, how that can be. Because once the, once the thing is out there, there's no putting it back in the bottle. You know, it doesn't matter who gets elected to the next presidency. They are not going to get rid of this agenda that's being pushed right now. It's out there. It's out there. Doctors are cutting people apart and changing them. And once it's out there, you can't put the, what's the term, the genie back in the bottle. You can't do it. Okay? So all you have is to go further down the line. That's all you have. A leader, if you elect a good leader, is only going to stall the process a little bit. He's not ever going to change what has been done, okay? It's not going to happen. So the world is wicked, and it's going to get more and more wicked. So we need to speak about Jesus. We need to do it while there is time. Because there's a time, what does it say? Night cometh when no one can work, okay? Uh, 2.14. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. Okay, very close, but a little different. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. Okay, now, uh, I maybe, now we're not going to have time for the next verse, but I actually saw the next verse on uh, a billboard. Let me just read it because I might forget this next week, and I, I probably won't forget it, but I'll probably end up repeating myself next week. But um, uh, verse 15, speaking of the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. That was on the outside of a Baptist church on that, you know, the thing they have under their sign. And it was saying, this is why we hate the Jews. They took, you know, one verse out of its context. Right. I mean, it's true what it says. The Jews did do this, but Paul was making a point about the Judaizers, the Judeans. He's just making a general point, not a point to hate the Jews and exterminate the Jews. That was not the point he was making, because if you go to Romans 9 through 11, he speaks about what? His Savior. relationship with right. the Jews, saving the Jews, the covenants with the Jews, everything about the Jews. This is coming. It's just that they're under a time of punishment. And People like that in that church are the type of people that have brought about the, the punishment and the persecution of the Jews. Now, that may be by God's hand, because he said, if you do this, then I'm going to do this. And he responds, but that does not absolve them of their responsibility in it, okay? Uh, it, we could use, and I, I'm just using this as an example, don't say that Charlie Garrett said, I'm just saying, if Hitler and his persecution of the Jews was a part of what God said was going to happen in Leviticus 26. Okay, we'll just make that say, if it was the case, does that absolve Adolf Hitler from having done no, what he did? Of course not. Absolutely not. Okay, so just because God says something is going to happen does not absolve the people who do it from their guilt. Okay, and that's something that you need to remember. Okay, the Russian pogroms and all of these other things. God says, I'm going to allow these things. I'm going to do these things. And whether it's active or passive, the people that do them 
take it too far, just like the king of Babylon in the book of Isaiah. And he says, now I'm going to turn around and I'm going to punish you. Okay, so we need to be very careful about that type of thing. So maybe I'll bring that up next week. Maybe I'll say I've, I've said enough. And anyway, 2.14. Paul just spoke of the favorable, favorable reception of the gospel message by those in Thessalonica, receiving it as the word of God. In that reception, they then spiritually joined together with the church in a sobering way. He explains this beginning with, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. So you've got these Jews, this, these Messianic churches in Judea, and he said, let me read it again, uh, you brethren became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. Now, here's a, a deep, deep question for the people that put up that sign. What were the people in those churches? Jews. Jews, okay. Who is Paul? Yeah, who is Paul? He's a Jew, absolutely. So it's you take things out of their intended context and you have signs like that on the front of churches. Paul is showing that there is a spiritual bond which has arisen between these Gentiles and those Jews who first received the gospel in Judea and who established churches there. However, he's careful to note that they are being compared to the churches in Judea which are in Christ Jesus. The word church is the Greek word ecclesia. It simply means an assembly or a congregation. To a Greek who had never heard of Jesus, it wouldn't carry the meaning of church at all. It would just simply be a meeting of people, okay? And so for Paul to say ecclesia, but to not include the term in Christ Jesus could mean pretty much any assembly in Judea, even a synagogue. Everybody got that? That's why he's being precise and he's using the terminology he's using. He's specific with his words to ensure that those in Thessalonica understand that their actions imitate the actions of the Christian churches of Judea. He then next explains what that limit or imitation is by saying, this is Paul writing to the people in Thessalonica, his words, for you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans. Okay, so he's making a comparison. He's not saying that there's one group of people that has to be exterminated because if that was the case, then the Christians in Thessalonica should go out and exterminate their own countrymen, right? right. Okay, the book of Acts precisely details the ill treatment of the Jews who received Christ Jesus. They were made to suffer in various ways because of this newly found faith. Even Paul persecuted the churches, probably more than anyone else. It is this persecution by one's own countrymen that Paul highlights as a bond of imitation between the church in Thessalonica and the church or churches in Judea. The word he uses to describe the countrymen of those in Thessalonica is sumphalites. It is a word used only this once in the Bible and it indicates of the same tribe. Those who were close and of the same stock persecuted them in the same manner as the Jews who followed Christ were of the same stock as those by whom they were persecuted. Okay, But there was an underlying truth which is often seen in the book of Acts. It was originally the Jews of the surrounding areas who spurred the Gentiles on to persecuting their own countrymen. You see that all the way through Acts. It's the Jews that go in and they instigate the Gentiles against their own people and then all of a sudden the church is like an anathema among their own people. Right. But 
In other words, the persecution normally originated and stemmed from the Jews because of their hatred of the message of Jesus Christ. They would rile up the Gentiles to persecute their own countrymen, just as they themselves did to their own countrymen in Judea. So ultimately, it goes back to them being the instigators. They're the ones that rejected the Messiah. They're the ones that were under the covenant that promised the coming of Messiah, and they were the ones that had the oracles that told of the coming Messiah in so much detail that when he came, they were without excuse. So they went into their time of punishment. That ended. They're back in the land. They have seven more years to get it right. They will eventually get it right, but it's going to be at a very, very high cost, okay? Israel is going to go through very troubled times, but guess what? The whole world is. The whole world is going to devolve into absolute chaos. It says in Isaiah that I will make man more rare than fine gold, okay? Now, there's a lot of fine gold on the planet. I mean, there's tons and tons of it, but if you consider it in relation to, like, the number of cars on the road, it's not much, okay? There's only a finite amount of gold available in the world, okay? And there's going to be a limited number of humans that come out the other end of the tribulation period. So thank God for Jesus who has delivered us from the wrath to come, okay? We're not going through that, just so you know. Just in case you aren't well-versed in that, we are not going through the tribulation period, okay? If I'm wrong, you haven't lost anything because you would have gone through it anyway. But the fact is the Bible says that we... You what? Yeah, you might be a little disappointed, but you know what? But I got to tell you what, I am not wrong. The Bible says we will be delivered from the wrath to come. It's not going to be poured out. Uh, Zola Levitt used to use the, a great expression. He said, God did not come to beat up his bride. Okay, it's just not going to happen. Anyway, um, uh, it is often the case that the most vehement resistance which Christians face, either directly or indirectly, comes from one's own closest relatives. If you're facing this type of hatred or even persecution, remember that it has been going on since the very beginning of the church. Pray for them. Don't be contentious with them and know that you are in the company of 2,000 years worth of saints who have done likewise. It is to be an expected part of the life of faithful believers in Christ Jesus. Okay? The best thing for you to do is to give your family the gospel and then let it go. You cannot beat the gospel into another person's mind. You cannot convince them by arguing with them. All right, all you are doing is alienating them further. Give them the gospel and then the rest of your life live out the gospel so that they can see that you are a person that really believes what you've been told. And when the ball drops for them, which it will, they may come to you and say, you know, I need what you have. It's very possible. So don't try to beat the gospel into people's heads. It's not going to work. All right. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for what the cross signifies for us. What a wonderful release from the guilt we bear on the cross of Calvary. Lord, help us to remember this, especially tomorrow. It's that time of the year when the moon is full at night and we can concentrate on what happened when Jesus went to the cross. The whole world was darkened and the wrath that you have for our sins was poured out on him. It's good to be reminded of these things. But Lord, it is also a time of new beginnings because in spring, the flowers come out and life returns. And we have the great hope that we will see Jesus again because he did come out of that grave. He prevailed over death 
and we remember that until he comes again. So thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for what this season signifies in our lives. We love you, we praise you, and we're so thankful to you. Thank you for Jesus. Amen. Okay, we'll say goodbye to the folks right now, and then I'll give them a wave on the way out. We have no sound. Let's take a break. Give them a wave.